Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers. And in this episode, we're jumping back to 1915, 1916, and the Gallipoli campaign, known by its veterans as one of the worst places to serve during the First World War. Think fierce, ferocious fighting, but also unsanitary conditions, terrible food, lice, flies, hot weather. And it's for that reason we focus a lot on the experiences of the soldiers on the ground. But what we don't really hear about is the fierce air battle that was going on overhead. In fact, when we think of the First World War, we don't really talk much about that fledgling air power and the experimentations that were going on. And so in this episode, first recorded for Dan So's History Hit, it's great that we get to talk to Mike Pavlak, Professor of Air Power Studies at the Air Command and Staff College for the US Air Force, who tells us about this forgotten history of air power at Gallipoli. Mike, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, listen, um, you told me something uh, when we were recording the previous podcast, and more importantly, when we were in the pub for several hours afterwards, <laughs> uh, about, about you have an expertise in First War Aviation, that's fine, but in Gallipoli, and I, I must confess to being, I did not realize the, uh, the aerial side of the Gallipoli campaign was pretty significant. Indeed, it's something that I've fell into when I was a graduate student many years ago. It's hard to believe it was 1997 when I was at University University of Calgary in Canada. Tim Travers was one of my advisors there, and he was writing a book at the time, which has subsequently become Gallipoli 1915, and it's a definitive account. And he had a big box of Gallipoli documents, and he told us, he was teaching the graduate students, I was one of them, how to do primary document research. And I was sort of sifting through some of his documents, and I found reference to a couple of airplanes, a couple of squadrons specifically. And that's what ignited my interest because I'd read a lot of books on Gallipoli and I was taking the graduate class on Gallipoli. So I was, I was doing even more reading and there was simply nothing there. And I was like, well, I'm an aviation story buddying at that time. But it interested me that there's this fantastic story of the First World War with movies and actors. And it was coming up on a hundred year anniversary and nobody had written the aerial component of the story. 
And so I sat down when I was a graduate student many moons ago, and I wrote a paper for this class, and Tim Travers wanted 25 pages, and I gave him about 60, and he said, hey, this is really good. Either cut it down and make it a really good article, or build it up and make it a really nice little book. I got an A-, minus, by the way. So it wasn't perfect, not by a long shot. Well, my primary research in my master's program and my PhD was Second World War Aviation. The Jet Race in the Second World War was the first book. But after a lot of years, I was able to go back to the archives and reinvestigate and dig deeper in this, into this Gallipoli story. And I mean, I'm going to ask a very stupid question. This wasn't naval air power. This was, this was ground-based aircraft, was it? It was both, the, it, but it was RNAS, Royal Naval Air Services, before they were, they were combined into the RAF in 1918. There was the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, and there was the RNAS, the naval component of Royal Naval Air Service. Kitchener specifically said, none of my RFC guys from the Western Front are going to Gallipoli. I don't agree with this program. So Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, sends the people he has control over which is the RNAS and a couple of ships like the Ark Royal and the Ben Mai Cree, which are seaplane tenders, and then later a whole squadron of RNAS land-based aircraft. Let's talk about seaplane tenders. So these are not flat-topped aircraft carriers. How to tell everyone how they how they launch and right. recover aircraft? Yeah. Before the modern concept of aircraft carriers, the British and the French designed a couple of seaplane tenders, and what they were were big ships. They were colliers in the second before the First World War, and they would carry seaplanes on decks and little hangars that were created on the decks, and they would lower the airplanes to the surface of the water, and they'd go fly off for a while, then they'd come back, and they'd taxi up close to the ship, and then cranes would pick them back up off the water and put them on board for maintenance and storage and put them in these little tiny hangars on, on, on the decks of the ships. So it was a seaplane tender. They carried seaplanes but it was before technology allowed them to launch on and off of a deck of a ship at that time. Yes, they're taking on and off on the surface of the sea. And is this just me being naive? But in that particular corner of the Mediterranean, it's pretty sheltered. So you could conduct um, maritime aviation regularly. Could you? Or how often was it? Was the, did the waves kick up? And the- yeah, it was. But it's fascinating because the early technology was so primitive. We're talking about wire and fabric and wooded airplanes that are powered by 50, 60, 80 horsepower engines. And so the pilots, and they're on floats on the water, which of course makes it even heavier than just wheels like a land-based airplane. The pilots and their pilot records in the logbooks would say if the sea was too calm, they couldn't unstick from the sea because they didn't have enough power. If it was too choppy, the airplane couldn't even try to take off because it would get swamped. So conditions had to be absolutely ideal for these very early seaplanes to be able to even take off from the water. Then they're so underpowered, they're only flying at about 1,500 feet, well within the range of the Turkish rifles. And they would come back with bullet holes because they couldn't get up high enough to avoid even rifle fire that was being shot at them. So it's an incredibly dangerous task in these incredibly primitive airplanes. What was their job? I mean, was it scouting initially or or did did they start to do ground attack eventually? Yeah, the initial use of the airplanes, the float planes from Ark Royal, was to scout the peninsula and find the forts that the Royal Navy and the British Marine Nationale needed to destroy for what they call Churchill's Folly. The first attack is simply a naval attack, and they were going to try to drive up the Dardanelles and then shell Istanbul, Constantinople. 
and try to get the Turks out of the war. That was the, that was the big plan. But to do that, they had to destroy the forts on either side, the European side and the Asian side of the, of the Dardanelles. So the planes were tasked with going out, and if they had a camera to take pictures, and they had this big, huge, long German camera, ironically, and they would take pictures of the forts, but then draw little primitive maps. They had one wireless transmitter on the Ark Royal that they tried to put in one of the airplanes really early on, but it was simply too heavy because radio technology was so primitive at the time as well. So the observers would literally map on a pencil on a, on a piece of paper what they saw from the vantage point of the aerial observation platform. Well, obviously the tragedy of Gallipoli was an inability to coordinate properly between naval gunfire support, amphibious assaulting troops, uh, and, and aircraft, had they just been that little bit more evolved, could have provided that vital link between the commanders and the guys on the front line and exactly where they were getting to and what they were up to. Indeed. There's the, the, the fascinating story, it evolves. The Ark Royal is first, and it's got four or five airplanes and a couple of pilots and a couple of observers. Then the RNAS, Royal Naval Air Service, sends an entire squadron, three squadron, and Charles Rumney Sampson is the commander, and he's just this dashing character with a mustache and and very angry and won't listen to any orders. And that is the land-based squadron that is so, sort so of... where's the airfield? They start at Tenedos, and then they go to, and they move to Mudros. So the little tiny islands off of the Gallipoli toe, off the toe of the peninsula. And that's sort of the the, the bulk uh, of the story that I'm that I've written, because that's the most primary documents that I found. But what what you have at the end of the campaign, you have airplanes, you have amazingly interesting commanders that are trying all kinds of different things. But at the end of the day, it's the breakdown in the communication between the army commander who's on the land, the naval commander who's on the sea with the fleet, and then the air component commanders that simply don't talk to each other, coordinating it in any way. And so it's not that the airplanes can't do things for either the land or the or, or the sea, it's just that the communication breaks down, and because of that, they have no coordinated attack against the Turks. And what, talk to me about some of the things they try and... I mean, in what, to what extent is this Gallipoli campaign an important campaign development of, of tactics? Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating for me as an air power historian because they literally try almost everything with these incredibly primitive biplanes at, at Gallipoli. It's the first time, one of the first times that they do mapping and observation and aerial photography. And they've, they're already doing it on the Western Front, but it, it's another place where they really perfect it. Then I've seen the plates that they exposed of the entire Gallipoli Peninsula where they photographed the entire thing. And it's absolutely just cool to be in the photo archives and see these, these photos. But they do air-to-air combat. They do submarine patrol. They do anti-mine patrol where they're looking for mines in the water from the air. And then in August 1915, Ark Royal airplanes, or is it Ben Micra, one of the seaplane tender airplanes is the first to launch an aerial torpedo against a ship, and they sink a Turkish ship that's at harbor. So it's the first use of aerial torpedoes from an airplane against a ship. They do bombing, tactical, operational, and strategic. They do all kinds of different, they do ground attack, they do close air support, they do all kinds of deception. So it's a fascinating, besides delivering paratroopers and air transport, they try pretty much every other mission that modern aircraft do. It's just amazing. But obviously they were unable to play a decisive role in, in the campaign. Well, indeed, the aircraft and the operations are not decisive at Gallipoli. They're not even decisive for who we would call the enemy. The Turks and the Germans have their own air component. 
the Turkish pilots in German airplanes for the most part with a couple of German air, air pilots who are uh, brought into the Turkish service. That's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. But it's a great story of the enemy or the, the opponent, the defenders. They are not able to keep the allies from doing what they want to do either. And so the airplane is not decisive at Gallipoli. But I thought it was an interesting enough story that I worked about 200 pages out of it. I really hope that people get a kick out of it. It would make a fantastic TV series or maybe even a movie. Hey, listen, stranger things have happened, buddy. <laughs> Come well, let's make we'll make it on historyhit.tv. Fantastic. Huge budget. Thanks very much, Mike. Come back on the pod. Always What's a pleasure. the book called? It will probably be. I haven't got a title yet because it has not yet gone to the publisher, but I'm just putting the finishing touches on it. I want to call it Air Power Over Gallipoli 1915. Sure thing. And where are you off to? You're just passing through London. Where are you off to? Some exciting uh, adventure on, I, on the way? I head to Serbia next. I'm in Rome for a couple of days, then back to teaching. See you soon, buddy. Take care. Thanks. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.